If you guys would open your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 8. This morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 8. Listen, if you're here visiting for the first time, I want you to understand we didn't just start the book of Revelation. We started way back, I don't know, a couple months ago in chapter 1. And what we do is we work our entire way through the entire book. And what that does is that gives us a good picture, a good overview of what God wants to teach us. You know, sometimes in, in Bible study, you can pull a section or pull a piece or pull apart, but it doesn't give you the big perspective. It doesn't give you the big picture. And when you approach the Bible, the first thing that you want to do when you're studying a portion of Scripture is get the context and get the overview of what's being said. Otherwise, you might make some mistakes on your interpretation, on your understanding. So as we've studied just by way of review, in chapter, well, let's start in the beginning. In chapter 1, John was taken up to heaven. He was taken, or I'm sorry, he wasn't taken up to heaven. He was on the island of Patmos, and he had a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 2 and chapter 3, we saw Jesus Christ walking among seven physical churches in, this, in that day and age. And we talked about how those churches were, were not only physical churches, but they were all also representing church history or a time period, what's known as the age of the church or the church age. And as Jesus walks among those, among those churches, he has, uh, he has some corrections to make. He has some rebukes to make, but he also has some encouraging things to say to some of them as well. So as he says that and he corrects his church, why? He does this because he wants them to be right. He doesn't want them to be wrong. And some of these churches were believing the wrong thing. We talked about how they were doing everything right on the outside, how from the street they looked great. They had ministries, they had buildings, they had things going on, but we talked about how their hearts, their hearts were far from the Lord. And what the Lord's concerned about is the people, not the organization, as a whole, he, you know, the church is about the people of God, not about the church of God. You know, as a, as a body of believers, we make up the church. And when we get to heaven, he's not going to say, hey, what denomination were you? It's not like God's going to be in line saying, all right, let me see your church registration card or your church membership card, and then you're going over here. You see, the only church that counts is the body of Christ, the believers, the, those that believe in Jesus Christ. We knit up, we knit together the body of Christ. And then in chapter 4, we saw something amazing happen. John is taken up to heaven. And we talked about how that's a picture of the rapture of the church. How someday in the future the church will be removed from this earth. And not the church, not like Calvary Chapel or any church, but those body of believers will be removed from this earth and we will then be taken up to heaven. And what will follow that will be the wrath of the Lamb. Or what is known as this tribulation period spoken of by Daniel. What is known as this period of intense judgment, this period of intense tribulation is going to come upon the earth. And I said something that I want you to remember and make sure you get. You might be tempted to say, well, Rob, there's tribulation on the earth today. Look around. There's tribulation going on around us. Wait a minute. No, no. That's a different tribulation. The tribulation that's going on around us on the earth today, that's a result of man's sin. Because man sinned. When God turned the earth over to Adam and Eve, it was perfect. And he only told them, hey, don't eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Man ate and brought sin into the world. That's not the tribulation that we're studying. You see, the, the tribulation we're studying comes from the wrath of God. God's going to actually judge this world. And it has two purposes, we said. The first purpose is to bring the Jewish believers to Christ, to let them know they missed the Messiah. The second purpose is to judge those people who have rejected Jesus Christ. You see, those people who reject Christ can only go on so long before God's wrath will be poured out on them. And then in chapters. In chapter 5, we, we were introduced to this scroll. And this scroll was in the hand of God. And we saw that nobody was worthy to open the scroll except for Jesus Christ. 
And this scroll was sealed with seven seals. And as he took off each one of the seals, there was another calamity, another judgment that came upon the earth. And the first seal was taken off. We saw the Antichrist coming. And he came in peace. And it, he made it look like everything was going to be great. The second seal was taken off. And then we saw war coming across the earth. The third seal was taken off. We saw famine coming. This is all in chapter 5. The, six, the, the fourth seal was taken off, removed. And we saw death spreading across the earth. The fifth seal was taken off, and then we saw the martyrs. We saw those people who had been killed for Christ because they refused to reject Christ during the tribulation period. You see, these are the people that get left behind from the rapture of the church, but yet they still turn to Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking at the rapture of the church, no one will come to Christ. The greatest revival that I think the earth has ever seen will come after the rapture of the church, but it'll also come with a great cost. It'll cost them their lives. Because they will no longer be accepted in this society that's taking place here on this earth. And then we saw the sixth seal. And it was a great earthquake. And the sun became black. And the moon like blood. The stars of heaven fell to earth. And then in chapter 7 we took a little bit of a pause. We were introduced to two groups of people in chapter 7. We saw The first group we saw were the 144,000. And depending on your religious background. Where you come from spiritually. That, has, that can mean a whole bunch of different things. But listen, if you look at it in chapter 7, and we talked about it in great detail, you can go back and catch the study if you want. It's clearly 144,000 Jewish believers. And we talked about how they're the first fruits, which means it's not the only Jewish believers, but they're the first group. There's 144,000. I likened them to a bunch of little Billy Grahams running around. They're sealed with the seal of God on their forehead, and they're going to be the evangelists during this time of tribulation. You see, it's the grace of God that says, even during my judgment, I'm going to give people a chance to turn to me. Even during this time of tribulation, even, even though the judgment of God is being poured out, I'm going to put people in a place to tell people about Jesus. It's not too late. And then we saw the second group of people was described as an innumerable multitude from all nations, peoples, tribes, and tongue, tongues, and languages. They were before the throne. These are the people, an innumerable multitude, how many? And you can't even count them. These are the people that are going to come to Christ during this tribulation period. They're before the throne of God. What a gracious God that says, even in the midst, up till the very last moment, I'll give you a chance to turn. Yeah, the cost might be greater, but the chance, the opportunity is still available. The choice can still be made. And this morning, as we dig into chapter 8, we're going to find out, well... Things on earth are going to get worse. Because with the opening of the seventh seal is going to begin the judgment of the trumpets. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. This silence isn't normal. Heaven is filled with praise. Heaven is filled with worship. We've seen that previously in the book of Revelation. The angels are worshiping. The church is in heaven worshiping. It's, it's worshiping, but all of a sudden, there's silence. Now, is silence awkward? can be. It can be really awkward. Sometimes it can be really relaxing. You know, if you live in a house with four kids, you go, silence, that's great. No, nothing against you guys. But it can also be really awkward. Half an hour? Is it a long period of time? It depends on where it is. It depends on what's taking place. What if I was to stand here before you for 30 minutes of silence? 
It wouldn't, don't worry, I won't do it. It wouldn't take very long before you said, it's just weird, you're going to get up and leave. So yeah, that would be awkward. What if it was, like I said, a home with four kids? If you, if you live by yourself, 30 minutes of silence is probably nothing. No big deal. You probably, no problem at all. But here, well, not in my house. <laughs> Got grandkids, okay. <laughs> but in heaven, it wasn't normal. What's, what it shows is this 30 minutes of silence tells us something is about to unfold Something big is about to happen. It leaves everybody speechless. 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Wow. Now, look at verse 2. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. These are seven angels. Some believe these are the seven spirits before the throne that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, and again in chapter 5. Listen, our perspective, we're doing the overview. What we're going to take it as, there's seven angels. The Bible says there's seven angels before God. There's seven angels before God. We're not going to try to read into it too much. We're not going to try to dig too much deeper. We're just going to take it simply put for what it says. So there's seven angels before God. They're given seven trumpets. Now Numbers chapter 10 tells us something about trumpets in the Hebrew culture. It tells us they were used for three things. They were used to call people to meet together. So if they wanted to get the group of uh, Israelites together, they would blow the trumpet and they would gather they're used to signal war or to let them know when to go out and fight a battle, let the, even let the enemy know, hey, we're, we're, we're calling a war against you. And they're also used to announce a special occasion, perhaps on Mount Sinai or even the Battle of Jericho. So this trumpet blows, these trumpets are going to blow, and these seven trumpets will sound literally God's battle alarm or God's battle cry during this tribulation period. So these seven trumpets are signifying here comes the judgment, more judgment on the earth. Now, let's look at them. Verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. There's another angel. He's before the altar. He's got a golden censer. He's standing before the altar, and he's got incense. And then we read the prayers of the saints. Some see this other angel as Jesus. Because the Old Testament refers to him in the Christophany as the angel of the Lord. But not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's Jesus. It's just another angel. And I'll tell you why I don't think it's Jesus. Because if you look at the word another, it actually means in the Greek, another of like kind. So when he says it's an angel, it's literally, again, let's not read into it. Let's just say there's another angel before the throne of God. And this angel has some interesting things in his hand. What's he have? He has a golden censer, he has incense, he's before the altar, and there's prayers being offered. Any of you Old Testament Bible students, what do you think? Sounds like the tabernacle, doesn't it? That's, what, that's exactly what took place in the tabernacle. Well, we know that the tabernacle, or the temple that existed here on earth, is a picture of the temple, or the throne room, or the place, that, where, place where God dwells in heaven. So what we see is this is being validated here, and it's because it's this earthly picture. So this angel standing before God, the incense of the prayers of the saints are rising before God. And notice the angel's not presenting the prayers. 
Now, I want to share something with you about these prayers. How many times have you prayed, Lord, you've got to come back? Lord, you just, this, this world can't go on. How about thy kingdom come? Thy will be done. When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you're asking the Lord to come back and reestablish his kingdom here on earth. That's what you're saying. That can't happen until judgment takes place. He can't just excuse those who have rejected him. So what we see taking place before the throne of God is the angel is burning the incense, the prayers are being brought up, and they're about to be answered. Thy kingdom come, bring, establish your kingdom here on earth, Lord. Let's do this. Let's make this happen. They're praying for the coming of the Lord. It can't happen without judgment. This is a picture of all the prayers throughout all the centuries saying, Lord, do this. We're ready for this. The world can't take any more of this. Come back, reestablish your kingdom. And that's what's taking place in the heavenlies as these trumpets are about to be blown. This angel takes the censer, he fills it with fire from the altar, and he threw it down to the earth. As God's people pray for the resolution of all things, their prayers were touched by the fire from the altar in heaven, and then they're thrown down to the earth. This means that at this time, God's saying, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to begin to bring my kingdom back. I'm, this is the day of the Lord. This is what's taking place. We are on the road. I'm going to do it. Judgment must come first. And it sets off thunder. It sets off lightning. And it sets off an earthquake. Look at verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The opening of the seventh seal didn't bring the beginning. or The, the opening of the seventh seal did not bring an end to judgment. It brought more judgment. Remember the scroll had seven seals. We covered the first six. What happened to the seven? This is the seventh. When the seventh is opened, there's now seven trumpet judgments that are going to be sound, sounded. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, before we go too far, I want to share something with you. I don't believe that these seven trumpet judgments are symbolic. Different commentators, different Bible scholars, will sometimes they'll come into the scriptures and they'll say, listen, all of these things, they all symbolize something. They all, they all just paint a picture of something else. Let me tell you, when you begin to make the Scripture symbolic, you get on a very slippery slope. When the Scripture says grass, I think grass. When the Scripture says tree, I think tree. When the Bible says angel, I think angel. I don't think we need to complicate it and make it really more difficult. But what happens is... People have different opinions and different views on end times and things like that. So in order to validate their opinions, you have to then bring in some symbolism to remove those things that work against your opinion. Because the truth is, as we study the scriptures, even when it comes to end times, eschatology, there's problems with everybody's position. You guys know I teach Revelation from a pre-tribulation perspective. I teach it from a pre-millennial perspective. But that doesn't mean that somebody couldn't argue against that and make some valid points. I've looked at all of the end time positions, and this is the one that I think makes the most obvious sense. And it's the one that takes the scriptures literally, which is what we try to do. Is When we begin to take the scripture and say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Who gets to decide what really means what it says and who doesn't? You see, because then if I can apply, if I can take this and say, well, this is just symbolic then I can go to any other scripture that I want and say, well, that's just symbolic too. That essentially puts you as the one in charge of what scripture is important and what scripture isn't because the ones that you don't like, 
And there are scriptures that we don't like, right? We just say, well, that, that's just symbolic. That doesn't really mean, that, that's just not for today. That's just outdated. We'll just push that one aside. Be careful, Christian. We take the scripture for the way that God wrote it. That's what we have to believe it. And there will be scriptures that you don't like. You, if you've read through the Bible at all, you're going to come across things that speak to you directly. And you go, oh, I don't like that one, Lord. Did you have to put that one in there? It's just, it's just a fact of life. All right. Trumpet number one. Look at verse seven. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. A third of the trees, all the grass is burned up. Listen, you say, Rob, that's kind of depressing on Sunday morning. I came here to be uplifted. I came here to be cheered up. I, I don't want to hear this. No, no, the good news is if you're a believer, you're not going to be here for this. But the bad news is you're going to have family and friends that might be here for this. But why do we study this? Let's study something happy. No, no, no. God put it in here because he wants us to know it's coming. He doesn't want us to go through life not knowing what to expect. You see, there'll be nobody will have an excuse. I didn't know. No, it's in here. I don't want to be a pastor who fails to teach people what God's word says. I will never make an apology for what God's word says. It's God's word. And we're going to have to cover difficult scriptures sometimes. And this morning and even on into the book of Revelation, there's a lot of judgment coming. And when I look at that, I want you to know I see the grace of God. Because God says, I'm going to tell you what's coming. I'm not going to surprise you. I'm going to tell you. I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be nervous. I want to tell you what's coming that way that you, you, you can expect it. Because now you can make a change before it comes. That's what God's heart is. So we come to this first trumpet, a third of the trees, the grass, it's all burned up. What do you think that would do to our food supply on earth? A third of the trees, gone. All of it, gone. How would that affect the animals that graze to eat food, to eat grass? Gone. Amazing. First trumpet. Second trumpet. Look at verse 8. The first trumpet was judgment upon the land. The second trumpet is going to be judgment upon the sea. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burned with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Notice it says something like a great mountain. When John's writing this, remember, he's limited to the words that he knows. He's seeing this take place and says, oh, it must be light. It's, it's something big. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a meteorite or maybe it's something coming crashing through the earth. It lands in the sea. But the devastation is incredible. A third of the sea, a third of the, an, of the, third of the living creatures died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. You ever been to the beach? You ever been to the beach after like uh, it's been kind of rough and, then you, and, a lot of, and a lot of dead things have washed up on the, on the seashore and you walk down the beach? What's it smell like after a couple days? It smells bad. If you go to a nice beach, they rake it and get all that stuff out of there so you don't have to smell it every day. But generally, if, if you go around the beach or around some fishing docks, around something like that, you smell dead. Can you imagine a third of everything dead? A third of the ships. Think about that. I wonder how many given ships are on the ocean at one time. I tried to look it up on the internet, and they couldn't. They have a, they have a, a website that tells you where all the airplanes are on, in the sky at one time. They don't have an, a website that tells you where all the ships were. But a third of the ships that are on the sea, all gone at one time. We're only two into this. Some people look at this, and they suggest the symbolism is, is in reference to a mighty nation that's falling. 
Some people say that this, is, this isn't really happening. It's just that there's a nation that's falling, and it's, it's a mighty nation. And some people also suggest that this is just the Mediterranean Sea because that's what John would have known. But I think it's always in our best interest to take it as what it says. The sea is the sea. Is it the Mediterranean? I guess it could be. It doesn't appear to be a mighty nation, though, because there's no indication that would be so. Look at trumpet number three. This is the judgment on fresh water. Then the third of the angel, then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. The star had a name, it was Wormwood, and what took place is a third of the fresh water supply is affected. A third. One-third of the fresh water supply on the earth is now become bitter, and you can die if you drink it. What effect does that have on mankind? Not, not a good one, that's for sure. Not a good one. Look at the fourth trumpet, the judgment on the heavens. Then the fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them was darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. This judgment affects the light sources of the universe. You see, we have a tendency to think there are certain things in nature that are constant, right? You don't have to wonder, did the sun come up this morning? It does. What if tomorrow it didn't? What if it was just dark? A third. Doesn't mean it's a third less light. It means a third of the day, a third of the night now becomes darkness. And imagine, as all this is going on, I can't help but wonder, what's going on with our electricity? Our lighting supply. If the sun was to actually go dark and the moon was to actually go dark, do you know the darkness that would bring upon the earth? You ever been someplace where it's pitch black? Like really, 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 like you can't see your hand in front of your face? It's almost disorienting, isn't it? Several years ago, uh, Rebecca and I went to a, we were, when we were living in Florida, we did, before we had kids, we did a lot of scuba diving. And we had gone up to one of the natural springs in Florida and we dove into this cavern. And we dove all the way down to the bottom of this big cavern. They had a rope so you couldn't get lost out of there. Well, we got down there and I turned my flashlight off. And it was literally black. And I got disoriented. I got flipped upside down underwater because there was no gravity, because I was neutrally buoyant underwater. I didn't know up from down. It can happen in an airplane as well. You can easily become disoriented. This darkness is going to literally cover the earth in complete and utter darkness. So when, you would, when someone's here, they would wake up and think, oh, the sun's going to be up at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Not only does the sun not come up, it's complete darkness. You see, like I said, we have some of these things in nature we just assume. We assume there's going to be enough water for everybody. There's going to be enough sunshine for everybody. We assume that this is going to be okay. But you've got to realize at the, at, the, at the raising of God's hand, he can strike the sun. He can strike the waters. It, nothing nothing is, is, is away from him. He's, he, we, you know, this tells us, this tells us that the Lord is the, he's the author of light. He's the one that provides the light, not the sun. This is the mistake people made in generations before us. They, they worship who? The sun God. They don't, don't worship the sun God, worship the one that created the sun. Because he's the one that can turn off the sun or turn on the sun at will. Don't make the mistake of worshiping the creation. Romans chapter 1 says they, they worship the creation rather than the creator. This is an incredible thing that's taking place on the earth. These judgments are being poured out. 
And look at verse 13. I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. There's an angel flying through the heavens. He's saying, woe, 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 because we're only through four of seven. It's only, we're only through four of seven. These first four trumpets deal with the physical world, and these are all the things that we as people take for granted. You assume you're going to have water to drink. It's when you turn your faucet on. You drink it. Some places have better water than others. We assume the sun's going to come up. We just take all this stuff for granted. But listen, creation is simply a a revelation of who God is. It's supposed to point us to who God is. Romans chapter 1 tells us that creation reveals the invisible attributes of God, even his eternal Godhead or the Trinity. We're supposed to look at creation and see a creator. Now, I'm going to share something else with you. There will be no atheists during this time. Everyone will know there's a God. There'll be no question whether God's judging. There'll be no question. There'll be no people wondering, going, well, I don't know if I believe in God or not. Because they'll be, they'll, they, they will know the existence of God. But sadly, there will also be people who are still continuing to reject God. And we'll see that as our scriptures play out. What we're about to see as we go here into the fifth trumpet It's actually going to get worse. Chapter 9. And the fifth angel sounded, and and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Can you imagine? Let's just break this down. The fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fallen from heaven. It tells us the star is a hymn. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth to him, which means it's to him. It's none other than Satan himself because we know Satan fell from heaven. He was an angel, but he's still an angel, but he's a demon now. But he fell from heaven, and we're told that he's given the keys to the bottomless pit. Isaiah 14 tells us Satan fell from heaven. Luke 10, verse 20 tells us Jesus said he saw Satan fall from heaven. But here's where it gets kind of interesting. He's given this key to the bottomless pit. And then we we read about these locusts. Now, when you think of locusts, what do you think? I think the little animal, right? The little things that come along. Remember, John's using words he knows to describe what he's seeing. This is not locusts like a little animal. This is, the, this, is, this is demons being released on the earth. And their mission is to torment, not kill, but to torment anybody, anybody that doesn't have the seal of God on their, head, on their forehead. Who had the seal of God on their forehead? The 144,000. We read that two weeks ago. 
They have the seal of God on their forehead. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would God do something like that? Why would he torment something like that? If God is love and God is good, why would he do something like that? Because he's giving mankind yet another chance to turn away and another chance to repent. Because if, he, if you notice, we're, we're seeing thirds, thirds, thirds. He's giving the rest of mankind a chance to repent, a chance to turn back to him. And I want to show you something here. The locusts represent the demons who are being held in the bottomless pit until a time of judgment. You see, what the scripture tells us is that there's a pit, an abyss. The, word, the Greek word is an abyss. There's an abyss where there's a group of demons who are worse, who are, who, who are like the worst of the worst. Jude, verse 6, says this. The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So what the scripture is telling us is there is a group of demons that is going to be released at this period with the blowing of this fifth trumpet and their whole goal is going to be torment mankind. Anybody without a seal of God on their forehead. Anybody. They're, they want not kill them. That's, they're, they're, it's, we read that they're going to wish that they were dead. But they're literally going to torment them. And then the likening comes to a scorpion. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and he was given them power as the scorpions have, as the scorpions of the earth have power. John, again, he's using these words that he knows. If you've ever seen or read about a cloud of locusts, this is this, this cloud that he sees as a cloud of demonic activity coming upon the earth. They're given power like a scorpion, but they're given very specific instructions. They're told what they can do, and they're told what they can't do. And we read in verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. But only those men who have the seal of God on their foreheads, they're not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Don't harm the grass. Don't touch the 144,000. But the rest of them you can torment for five months. Now as he brings up scorpion, I thought, I wonder what it feels like to get stung by a scorpion. Anybody ever been stung by a scorpion in here? No? I haven't either. So I went on YouTube last night. And there are people dumb enough to stick their arm in a cage with a scorpion and get stung. And while it's rather entertaining, some of them jump around and they talk about, I get dizzy and I can't see right. And they talk, they're, they're explaining their symptoms and they're kind of doing all this thing. I'm thinking, man, that's just really dumb. And then it takes them a couple hours to get past this, this venom that, that's been injected in them. They're actually being stung by a scorpion. But what's taking place is it's going to be happening over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's not a physical scorpion sting. It's not what he's talking about. But the torment that goes along with that is going to be covering the earth. Anybody who's not sealed, anybody who's still here, they're going to be covering with this. They're going to be, they're going to be wishing they were dead. I want to die. I want to die. But what we see, what we read here, in those days, men will seek death and they will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. Death is going on vacation. Death is not available. It's not a viable option. There will be people that try to kill themselves that can't succeed. It's not even a possibility. You're going to live in torment if you're here. Whew. Rob, can we just talk about something good? We will. We'll get there in about six months. And then John describes these locusts to us. He says in verse 7, 
The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. They had, their, their teeth were like the lion's teeth. They had breastplate like, breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. They were sting, and, and they were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollon. Literally means destruction and destroyer. Some people read this passage, if they take it out of context, they say, hey, this sounds like helicopter gunships. This could be helicopters. Maybe this is the, this is the war that's taking place of the Antichrist. But the problem, it doesn't really fit all the details. Some people will say that I disagree. I think, I mean, I think John's describing what he previously talked about with the demons, the demonic activity that's going to be released on the earth. And this is the only way that he knows how to describe it. And it's literally, I'd almost think it's indescribable. I think if I saw something like that, I wouldn't want to write, it about, write down about it. But John says, I have to. Why did he have to? Because he was told, write down these things. Write down these things that you see. And John's describing it to him. Well, what exactly is this? Well, we know the locusts represent the demons, but don't get caught up in the details. Dr. Henry Morris said this, he said, there seems to be no alternative to concluding that God, satisfying the age-long desire of those wicked spirits to possess bodies of their own, has created bodies for them, bodies appropriate in demonic appearance to the character of the demonic inhabitants. So Dr. Henry Morris says, listen, those are just demonic bodies. That's a special thing that we've never really seen. We're just, they're just, they want a body so badly, and it ties back to the Nephilim back in Genesis. They want a body so badly to, to inhabit, we're going to give them bodies, and this is what John describes it as. Another commentator says this. I like this one. There could be no specific answer to the question of exactly who or what is symbolized by the plague of locusts. All we can know for sure is that in the period immediately before the end, the wicked will be subjected to a time of unprecedented demonic torment. Exactly how this will take place will remain unknown until disclosed by history itself. You see, the truth is when we come across this in Scripture, if we get too focused and too locked in onto this one thing, we lose the big picture. And we, get, we can spend hours, well, I think it's this and I think it's that. Well, the truth is we know it's demonic activity. This is what John's saying. All I want to know is I don't want to be here for it. I don't want any part of it. Now, are demons real? Yes. Yes. Can somebody be demon-possessed today? Absolutely. Don't fool yourself and don't think that he can't. It's been said the greatest lie that Satan ever told is that he didn't exist. And he is the father of all lies. He is the father of all lies. It's certainly a possibility. Now, that's trumpet number five. We're not done yet. We've got trumpet number six. Look at verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This golden altar is the altar of incense. It's associated with the prayers of God and the, and the, prayers, the prayers of the people going, rising up to God. There's more. It's like that commercial that never ends. But wait, there's more. It's, it's not going to end. It keeps going. But this interesting thing here, it's the river Euphrates. 
the River Euphrates. You know, to us on this side of the world, we don't really think much of the River Euphrates. We, we really have only probably read about it in our Bible. But do you know that in biblical history, the River Euphrates has quite a resume. There's quite a lot attached to it. Let me just share with you a few things. The River Euphrates was the landmark of ancient Babylon. The River Euphrates, it was the former frontier of Israel's land as fully promised by God. It was the boundary of, of, the, nation, of the land that was given to the nation Israel. It was also the boundary of the old Roman Empire, which will be revived under the Antichrist. The river Euphrates is associated with the first sin in Genesis chapter 2, the first murder in Genesis chapter 4, the first organized revolt against God in Genesis chapter 11, the first war confederation in Genesis chapter 14, and it's also the first, where the first dictatorship sets itself up in Genesis chapter 10. So what we see is, again, there's going to be There's going to be more angels that are released. Release the four angels. Some people believe this is the four, same four angels that were at the four corners of the earth in Revelation chapter 7. Don't get caught up if it's the same. Get caught up on what's taking place. Look at verse 15. The four angels who had prepared for the hour and day and month and year. They'd been prepared. To, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Brimstone sulfur. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Two hundred million people. The largest armies that have ever been assembled during World War I and World War II, if you combine, or during World War II, if you combine all of the foot soldiers, we had 70 million. On both sides, you put it all together. So 200 million people, or 200 million demons, is what we see taking place here. It's a powerful picture of horror, of destruction, and demonic association. Literally, these 200 million people is a demonic army that John's talking about when he talks about the locusts. When he talks about a locust swarm that can, when, when locusts swarm over in the Middle East and Egypt, you can, you can Google it. The great thing about today is we can Google pictures and get them like that. Google locust swarm. And you'll see that it actually, it's like a cloud. It can be several miles long and several hundred feet thick where they come in and they just demolish everything. And that's what John's likening this demonic activity coming upon the earth. Just, just coming, moving through, demolishing everything in its path. Mankind-wise, because they were told not to touch the grass or the trees. And the result is a third of mankind is dead. Roughly about 1.5 billion people. Remember, 25% of mankind was already wiped out earlier in our, in our, in our uh, seals. Mankind is being wiped out. Rob, I, don't, I just don't understand this. Why is God doing this? Why doesn't he just end it? Why does he, just, why does he have to go through this whole process of redeeming mankind? Because he's still waiting for people to get saved. He's not done. He's still waiting for people to turn to Christ. He's still saying, listen, 
Look at the horror. Look at the destruction. If you were in this, you've heard this described. If you were in this, would you turn to Christ? I talk to people that, that say, well, if that really happens, then I'll turn to Christ. Listen, if you can't turn to Christ today, you're not going to turn to Christ then. You're not going to believe then when it's going to cost you your life. You're not going to believe then. You see, because in the midst of all of this tribulation, our God is still waiting for people to come. And he still knows, because he knows the future, there are still people that are going to turn to Christ. That's why it's not all happening with one swoop or one raise of his hand. Because mankind is still being saved. In the midst of all this, I think, we look at verse 20. This is the status scripture we're going to read today, I think. Verse 20. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. They did not repent. How much will it take to get a man or a woman to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ? Well, Rob, if I lived during that day, if I, if I saw that happen, if a third of mankind and the waters were turned bitter and the, in the darkness, and the, I, I would definitely be following Jesus. No, you won't. Because there's people that are still here not following him. They're, they're, they're refusing. And look what they're exchanging him for. They're the same things that people exchange for Christ today. Look what it is. They did not repent of their murders, their sorceries. You know what sorceries means? If you have a more modern language, you have a note in your Bible that means, it means drugs. It's a pharmaceutical term. It's associated with the taking of drugs or medication. It literally means harmful drug or poison. We're living in a society, in a culture where drug abuse, prescription drug abuse, is running rampant. It says they did not repent from their murders, their hatred. Murders is, means, it means hatred there. Jesus said if you have hatred in your heart, you've murdered. All you have to do is watch a debate, a political debate, and you can see hatred in the heart of man. Doesn't, you don't have to look very far. Do we, think, do we see hatred in the heart of mankind? Absolutely. It's very relevant. It's very relevant. They wouldn't repent from that. They wouldn't repent from their drug use, or they wouldn't repent from their sexual immorality. Do we live in a sexually charged culture? You better believe it. Notice he doesn't pick one. He doesn't, he doesn't pick, a, pick a flavor. He says sexual immorality, period. They wouldn't repent from their sexual immorality and they wouldn't repent from stealing, from thefts, from taking things that didn't belong from them. From whether it be their time from their employer, whether it be something small or whether it be something large. They, they were excusing sin and not calling it sin. That was the problem. They were, God's okay with this. I was just made this way. I'm just, this, God, God's all right with this. God is not all right with any sin in anybody's life. He's given you the ability to overcome it through the blood on the cross. That's why he went to the cross. But a failure for you to repent, look what you're going to face. Now, we don't know when this will all unfold. That's the quite big question. This could all start tonight. Or it could all start in a thousand years. Either way, the only time you have left is that you're here on this earth. Because once you're taken up, once you're left behind, or once you pass away, that's it. There's no more time to make that choice to follow Christ. 
The repentance has to happen on the earth. That's why this is being drug out so long. So God's giving these people because we just read, and I summarized it for you in the beginning, there's an innumerable multitude from all nations, from all tribes, and from all tongues that are before the throne of God as a result of their repentance during this tribulation period. That's why it's not happening like that. Because God says, I'm going to give the time for everybody that's going to repent to repent. Now here's the beautiful message in this. There's some good news. Jesus told the church of Philadelphia that if they would persevere, that he would keep them from the hour of tribulation in Revelation chapter 3. He'd keep them from the hour of tribulation. I firmly believe with all my heart, those who repent today, before the rapture of the church, we're not going to partake in any of this. We're going to be that group in heaven that's worshiping and praising the Lord. But the only way that happens is if repentance happens before the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church doesn't bring a, that's it. It just makes it a lot harder. It just makes it a lot harder. We have to be people. Listen, don't ever come to Christ because I scared you today. Don't ever come to Christ because you look at it and go, I don't want to do that. What? I don't want to If you say raise your hand, I'll raise my hand. Whatever I need to do, just get me out of that. That's not the right way to do it. That's, that's what I call fire insurance. You just don't want to be, up, be on the earth when it's burning. Coming to Christ is more than raising your hand or praying a prayer. Coming to Christ is acknowledging that God is God. God is the creator. You are the creation. God is the one I'm going to serve. He's the one I'm going to live after. It is he who establishes the law. He who establishes the rules. He who establishes what's right and what's wrong. I'm simply saying I agree with him. That's what it means to follow Christ. It just says, I'm going, yes, Lord, you are, I am the creator. It doesn't mean you'll never, be, you'll never sin because you're not going to be perfect. It just means your sin is forgiven. Because the moment I accept and I acknowledge God is God and I realize I am a sinner, I've blown it, I've made mistakes in my life, I've done things wrong, big or small, the scripture is very, very clear. We're all sinners, we've all done that. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven on your own. Well, wait a minute, what if I do more good than bad? What if I do, you know, you know I did some bad things in my life, but, but now I'm a pretty good person. Listen, if that were a way to get to heaven, Jesus would have never died. He wouldn't have had to. The truth is, we can't get to heaven on our own. He wouldn't have had to come to earth, step out of heaven, go to a cross, accept the penalty for our sins. We can't get there on our own. The only way is through the blood of Christ. There's no other way. There's no other alternative. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Rob, that's pretty closed-minded. In our culture, there's all kinds of ways to God. Not according to Jesus, there's not. And he was God. He even claimed to be God. People can believe whatever they want, but it doesn't make it true. You see, there's only one way to God. There's only one way for your sins to be forgiven. And when they are forgiven, isn't it a beautiful feeling? It's no longer being held against me. I don't have to worry about my past. I don't have to worry about the, I don't have to worry about the mistakes I'm going to make in my future because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We're told when we choose to follow Christ, we are then sealed, like the 144,000, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who's a guarantee and a promise for us. Rob, since you put it that way, why would anybody not want to follow Christ? Because they'd rather follow their flesh. And they'd rather commit things like theft, sorceries, murders, hatred, sexual immorality. Because when someone chooses to follow Christ, it means I'm going to align my beliefs with his. And when he says something is wrong, 
I'm going to accept it as wrong. I'm going to say it's wrong too. I'm not going to try to explain it away. You see, when the scripture says this is sin in my life, whether it be the way I think or the way I talk or the way I act or my whatever it is, I'm going to accept it as sin. That's the only way that I can follow Christ. I don't get to pick and choose because when I begin to pick and choose, then I'm making myself God. Or you're, you're heaping yourself up saying, I'm the one that decides what's right and wrong. No, he's the one that decides what's right and wrong. And he told you what's wrong, everything that's wrong, and he took care of the problem. He died for your sins. He died for us. So when we sing songs like nothing but the blood of Jesus, we mean it. It's in our heart. When we praise the Lord and we talk about uh, the Lamb of God who was slain for the world, that, that's not just words on a page. That, that's something coming out of a believer's heart. I can worship God to that because those, that Lamb was slain for me and it was slain for your sins. Not just for, for show so that we could all hang a cross on our neck and walk around someday. It's not the cross that we celebrate. It's the Lamb. It's the death. It's the blood that was shed. That's what makes us whole. That's what reunites us with God. That's what when we look at this scripture and say, why is that in the Bible? Because God wants you to know what's coming. He doesn't want you to be able to say, I never heard. I didn't know. My prayer is this morning that each one of us would know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you need to come see me right after I close in prayer because I want to lead you to Christ. Uh, don't wait another day because you say, Rob, this looks, sounds pretty bad. When's it going to happen? There's nothing left on the prophetic calendar for the rapture of the church to take place. Nothing. It could be in the next hour. It could be the next thousand years. We don't know. But I can tell you this. As we look around the world, out of our country, because by the way, we're not part of it. As much as America, we like to think we're so involved in everything. It all takes place over in the Middle East. We look at what's going on over there and the turmoil that's taking place and what's happening. We could be really, really close. We really could be close. Let's pray. Father, as I said, there's some scriptures we like better than others. And Lord, as a pastor, this is not one I would pick to teach on Sunday morning. But Lord, it's one that you thought was important for your people to know. And I've delivered it, Lord. I pray that the hearts that it needed to touch would be touched. Father, I pray that if there is somebody here that doesn't know you, they would come up afterwards. And they could enter into that relationship and change their life forever, Father. For the better. Father, I thank you for our fellowship here. I thank you for this group of people that have gathered to hear your word. I pray for them this week. Would you bless them? Would you keep them from the enemy? Would they be able to see clearly when the schemes of Satan are unfolding before them? When the temptations are happening? When the bad thoughts or the negative thoughts or the untruthful thoughts are coming into their head? Would they push them aside and exchange them for what they know to be truth? Would they exchange them for your word? And Lord, would you just help us all navigate through this earth? Lord, while we're here, while we're waiting, we've got a lot of work to do. Would you just direct us under the things that you want us to do? Would you show us what you think is important in our life? And Lord, if we've been away, may we come back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.